Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. This weekend marks the 75th anniversary of A Streetcar Named Desire, making its Broadway debut on December 3rd, 1947, starring the great Marlon Brando. I discussed Brando's career in depth with filmmaker Stephen Riley during the release of his 2015 documentary, Listen to Me, Marlon. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Nice to speak to you guys. What was your personal connection to making the movie? Were you a huge Brando fan, or, or, or what? What was the tie? Um, no, in fact, I mean, I, I mean, I'd seen his films and um, and and was um, you know knew him as a great actor and um, you know, impressed by all the all um, um, you know the top roles like Godfather, Last Tango, It's Now. But um, I didn't know too much about him at all. Um, and um, the way um, I got involved was actually the production company. Um, who I've worked with a few times before, called me up and said, um, you know, um, what are you up to? Would you be interested in doing a film on Marlon Brando? So it was, um, it was a very um, uh, open um, uh, brief at that point because um, the access was in place. The Brando family and the Brando estate um, were happy that a film um, would take place, you know, with, um, with um, uh, the right approach and the right director. And then it was up to me to kind of you know, just really figure out what was the way into um, this man's life. And to figure and to really understand him, and I and I there was a lot to for me to get my head around because the further I got in, the more complex and contradictory he revealed himself to be. Um, but um, it was a fascinating journey, you know. It was a, it was a, it was a great uh, research process, and you know I was uh, fortunate to um, have the chance to make it. Now you kind of right there, you just mentioned kind of two different things here. First was the access to all this unseated, un, you know, unheard archive of, of footage from his family, and then the other part was how you then, you know, deciphered all of that and found your little angle at it. So get, talk first. Let's talk about the first part. The, the you know your access. How did you get the ability to access all the all this archive here? Well, it just so happened that the the, the Brander estate were sort of figuring out. Um, um, their um, their entire act really. I mean, I suppose there have been ten years since Marlon had passed away, and um, and and a lot of the boxes and and his personal effects and and archive had just been in storage that entire time. So so coincidentally, you know, as the as the the possibility of the film came around, all of these being unpacked, and um, everything from you know that remained of Marlon's personal effects and that include documentation and. Um, you know, um, things of furniture, ornaments, um, and also, you know, the, these tapes, um, um, audio and visual, were just coming out and coming to the surface. So, um, you know, that was one of the first questions uh, that I asked, is, you know, what do we have access to? And um, and I was um, uh, included these tapes, and I listened to a first handful, and, and kind of sort of... Um, after, in the course of doing my first month's research and trying to figure out an approach, I just started questioning, well, you know, um, how interesting it would be if the story was told entirely in Marlon's own words because he had been so private um, and hadn't given those interviews during the course of his life that, you know, that would, that would be, uh, you know, an, an amazing um, um, uh, attempt, uh, uh, an approach to the film. Um, but I just didn't know that was at all possible right then because, you know, there ended up being um, about close to 300 hours of audio tapes that came out of the boxes eventually, but it wasn't um, obvious um, straight away. But, um, but you know, thankfully, um, it, it all 
worked out and, and the materials ended up being there and with a lot of hard work um, Marlon is the only voice in the film you know and, and he could tell he could tell his entire life story you know so you wanted to be you wanted it to be something where it's not outside talking heads it's basically Brando on Brando that was kind of the concept yeah exactly exactly and um, um, and you know it was and it was an exciting prospect initially to not go that that talking head route um, sure, yeah. but um, uh, and um, you know, and it was just great to be able to fulfil that. I mean, I, I I ended up doing you know going about the film in um, in a in a regular way as far as I approached stuff. That I you know I read all the books. I went out to the states and met all of his family and friends and um, work colleagues who I could possibly get. Who would sit down with me and I could talk about him and um, and um, you know really try and um, uh, get to the essence. Um, and uh, you know that was really incredibly useful. Eventually, um, having those those notes, and I just took them as you know notes on my phone because it allowed me to penetrate the, the material in a meaningful and um, uh, understand and with a degree more understanding than uh, we've had otherwise. Awesome, yeah. I'm I'm really interested in how you went about structuring the doc, um, balancing stuff about his personal life and his professional life. Like, do you inter do you intersperse, uh, you know, film clips at all, or is it mostly just his personal life? There's there's a mix of stuff, really. I mean, in terms of, sort of you know the the spaces in the film. I mean, narratively, um, the there's there's three ages of Brando, which are all very much interdependent because you okay. know so much of his. Um, of his later experience and the things which happened in his life and his character was dictated as for all of us by our early years. So, um, so you know, there's the, there's the tale of Brando the young boy, Brando the actor, and then also Brando the old man living in Mulholland um, in a in a in, um, in a fairly uh, reclusive mode that we're that we that we know of that we're familiar with. Um, so, uh, so you know, that was. Um, um, uh, Something which was, you know, already um, uh, part of the, the original conception, as well as this idea of the film being a self psychoanalysis. You know, right. Brando was trying to figure out all of the um, uh, the the uh, the, um, the whys and wherefores of his own character, and specifically as well how um, the tragedy which um, which uh, happened in his house in Mulholland, which um, you know. A lot of people know about where his um, his um, his daughter's boyfriend was shot by um, um, his son, yeah. and his son had shot his sister's um, boyfriend yeah. um, in in the family house. And the film um, is almost a, you know a, a decoding of how that event could have ever have come to pass for somebody who was so thought thought out and philosophical, and you know, um, as Marlon was, and someone who was you know just trying to um, uh, keep her. Uh, figure out the you know the problems of ourselves and our character. How could this terrible thing have happened in his own home? Right. So Did that you... was um, so that was part of the um, that's part of the narrative too, an investigation into that. Do you save that until the third chapter, the third act, or do you kind of introduce it early, Sunset Boulevard style, and then come back around to how it, how it came to be, kind of a thing? Um, I guess yeah, kind of it, it, yeah. It, 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 you do yeah, you see it early on, and then okay. there's um, and there's echoes of. Echoes of it exactly in that way, and um, but you. it says, uh, uh, but it because it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a Freudian study too, because you know, in order to understand how that happens, you have to go back yeah. to Marlon's childhood. Love it as well, you know, to see um, you know what the it's yeah. it's um, it's it's a 
generational tale as well. Let's let's kind of move through those three chapters one by one. So I mean, because now you just brought up Marlin's childhood. Um, what uh, what's what are some of those Freudian things in that first you know first act of this of his life that you think um, that led to some of these things later in life that you that you just referred to? Um, well, he I mean he had a very um, uh, turbulent childhood without a doubt. I mean his um, his mum and uh, and and his dad were both drinkers. His mum was an, his mum was um, you know an, she was an alcoholic, and his dad was. Um, you know, that was violent towards his mother and violent towards him as well sometimes. So, you know, for somebody as sensitive as Marlon, he's had massive repercussions. And, mm. um, and um, you know, and he, he says, fairly telling me that he thinks that we spend our entire lives trying to overcome the, the, the problems and bad habits established in the first 10 years of our life. Totally. So a lot of that is, you know, um, those repercussions are felt, are felt through the film. And um, and he was, but he was a very you know. Uh, um, that's the whole rosebud argument, yeah. man. I mean, that's the whole. That's it, man. It's it's uh, what happens mm-hmm. when you're young. I mean, that's <laughs> on your deathbed. You're still thinking about it. Yeah, I mean it's true, and 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 actually, in almost like your past is inescapable. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Of it, which you have no control over, and only with the, the hardest work can you ever seek to overturn that kind of um, that the the effects of that. Of so that. it's kind of fatalistic in that in that sense, like it's already destined. Yeah, well, he when he had, I think, I and mean, this is one of the questions he really analysed, and certainly in the course of his life in the film as well. But you know, I, I know that that was a big question with, and you know, how much power do we really have? And, right. um, but you know, equally, um, you know, he was getting involved in as his, um, as as he's heard in the tapes in the film, you know, in in self hypnosis mm-hmm. and self therapy, and um, and um, you know, he was really trying to you know correct those wrongs and to in some way parent himself. And give himself the parenting which he felt he never had. Wow, yeah, that's pretty heavy stuff. Um, let's mm. move. Let's move into the professional part of his career. Um, what does he have to say about kind of sort of his, you know, his big break and leap from Broadway to Hollywood? Um, well, he just. Um, I mean, everyone sort of says, "Oh, you know, Brando should have done more stage acting, and what a waste!" And you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, God, he threw his talent away. But um, but yeah, you you discover actually the 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 the, the trials and the difficulties that an actor like Brando, who pioneered the method, who's yeah. bringing so much of his own life into his part, it was tough work. It was just too hard for him to um to play Stanley Kowalski every night, who was um you know a um uh, a, a you know a violent drunk, you know a character who was quite familiar to him, but um you know when he was in streetcar broke all records at that point and was a massive runaway Broadway success. But yeah. after two years in that, I think it, you know it broke him down, and he he just he the last thing he ever wanted to do was get involved in 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 theatre. But he was he was, and I'm convinced he was an artist. He really wanted to um, he really wanted to excel in his in his craft, and and as much as he would disparage. Um, Acting and was became very disillusioned, deeply disillusioned at many points. You know, when he when he had the fire in his belly, he really wanted to do great things, and and I think he understood that um, he could um, reform cinema, and um, he wasn't impressed by the previous generation of actors mm-hmm. um, who he felt were far too stilted and overly dramatic, and right. you know, with just yeah stiff in their in their role play. And uh, and he wanted to bring in a much more manneristic and naturalistic and truthful form of acting, um, 
and um, and that's the revolution with which he's um, uh, credited because his early roles, um, uh, including uh, in The Men and Leave Us a Patter and Street Kind in Desire, were you know revolutionary in film, um, and um, and he and he achieved what he wanted to set out or, uh, to do what he set out to do in in, in movie making, and um, yeah. and nothing's been the same since. Yeah, I mean, talk, you just mentioned about how he, he thought, you know, he wasn't impressed with the previous generation. And then here here in Streetcar, you know, he's working for Kazan, so he knows this, you know, familiar, you know, face that helped him pioneer what he was doing in theater. And then, then he gets to Hollywood, and he's working right across the screen from the total different acting style. She is that very traditional style that you said he didn't really respect. And here he was this new method um, force on the scene. So what does he have to say in the documentary? Does he have anything to say about what it was like, you know, those two clashing styles? in Streetcar? Um, do you know, he didn't speak um, about Vivian Lee specifically. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the pair of them. I mean, when I, when I watched, um, and I hadn't seen Streetcar, which goes to show, you know, I, I had a lot of research. I hadn't seen Street Streetcar before I started re- um, uh, researching the movie, um, the documentary. I, um, I saw that scene, the opening scene, where um, Blanche meets um, um, Stanley. Yeah. And that right there just explains everything. You can just see in, in just the way he carries himself versus, yeah. you know, the, the doyen of the old school, yeah. Vivian Lee, you know, the, you know what the, the revolution would be. But, um, but no, in terms of talking specifically about, um, you know, Vivian in that moment, he doesn't, but he certainly has a lot to say about the characters like Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart, mm. and, you know, uh, who he thought were formulaic. And he said they were playing themselves. He said that they weren't actually... Um, uh, character actors, in a way, and actually, and that's the one, that was the one revealing thing to me in terms of the finishing, you know, the the the, the research and and the move that the film was that he, you know, there's been no one like Brando, and and I think you know obviously he's put on his own pedestal, but yeah. you know it, he 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 was um, he never played he he would got too bored playing himself, right? And when you see that he obviously. He got an Oscar for playing an Italian-American in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Um, he also got an Oscar for playing a Mexican in Viva Zapata. He played an Englishman. And by the way, he's taking on the accents for all these um, characters as well. He's not right. just, you know, coming in with his own voice and a different costume. He's actually trying to really be, uh, play cross-cultural roles and to try and really understand um, the the tics and, and, and habits and mannerisms of an entire culture. That's where he studied and and I, and I really can't name, even to this day, many actors who were nearly as brave as him. The, 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 the gamut of roles which he attempted was, was quite extraordinary and, um, um, you know, and, and, and not since repeated, I don't think. Absolutely. And there's so many great ones. And, um, you know, I want to be able to just touch briefly on them because I know our listeners, that's, that's the meat of this, that they're going to want to hear. Like, oh, what did he have to say about On the Waterfront and Godfather? You know, so, but if, mm-hmm. um, let's have fun with it. Is there, is there a way we can kind of move through them? Um, just sort of quickly. Um, I'll, I'll maybe maybe I'll mention one of the roles, and you can give me something, maybe an interesting tidbit from the doc that he had to say about it. Um, we mentioned Streetcar. How about on the waterfront? Any what cool insight about that? I mean, that to me that might be his career role. I mean, well, other than The Godfather. Well, what's fascinating, you know. Um, um, oh, by the way, sorry, on the earlier thing, can you correct? He didn't get an Oscar for Viva Zapata. He got an right. Oscar nomination. Right. Obviously, but he got he got the, uh, um, an Oscar he, for. He uh, won for On the Waterfront. Yeah. But but what was um, uh, what was fascinating about on the waterfront was that he uh, he he was so 
despondent and depressed on on watching the film. Really? And he thought that it wasn't. Yeah, he was. He was not in, uh, impressed at all with his acting, and thought that he could have done a much better job. And then was actually very surprised when the film won an Oscar. And then he goes into this deep inquiry into you know well, actually well then how did that ever how did that come to pass? How can I think it was so bad? And yet the audience right. loved. And then he starts exploring the idea of mythology, mm. and um, and the power of myth. Mm. And, and, and he had this um, you know, idea that developed that the actor shouldn't get in the way of the story, you know, and that, that the, it's the audience who is acting. The audience um, um, feels they could have been a contender. The audience feels inferiority. Mm-hmm. Everyone's had that moment. So yeah. or he just felt that he was a conduit for that rather than um, uh, the um, actually um, r- responsible for it. That's so wild to me that, you know, because we all look back at it how many, de- you know, it's 1954, so decades later, and, and we're, we view it as one of the great, you know, <laughs> movie performances ever. But it's just wild to me that he could, could uh, walk off set and think he failed at it. it did he, I mean, even giving the famous speech, the, it could have been a contender, it was you, Charlie, he, he, was, he wasn't even pleased with that? Well, there was. Um, I mean, I think he. I think he was pleased with, pleased with the eventual outcome of that because, in the okay. end, Kazan had chosen his his his, his, his version of it because they were going to go about it a few different ways. And one thing for that particular scene, which I think I think it's been written about, and you know, it's almost um, it's a, it's one of those anecdotes mm-hmm. and things that have been um, um, uh, retold. But certainly, when Brando describes it, yes, it was a bit of an ad hoc. Um, um, uh, you know, improvised taxi cab in the back of a you know a lot that was a pickup right. shop. Effectively, they threw the Venetian and, um, blinds and they put in a the curtain. Back. Over, they, they they put a curtain over the back. They couldn't do a rear projection, and right. and um, and then they set about you know just trying to figure the scene out in a very short amount of time. And um, and I think um, you know the original script had it that that he was going to be you know threatened with the the the, the gun, and um, and and. Uh, Brando was going to react. I forget whether in a, you know in, a, in an intimidated or an angry way, but actually it was Brando who said that you know he would have just been disappointed. Right, his brother could have sunk to that level, and that was that was that was his improvisation on that. And so he just gently, you know, it's not it's, that that was the, that was the um, the emotion of that scene when Brando said that. It's such a better reaction too, and he gives that look. He's like, he's like, really, really, my brother Charlie, you're really gonna do this? It was you, Charlie. I mean that, but yeah. but that's Brando. He's bringing the whole tone to that scene. You're saying, well, that yeah, absolutely. And I think what what's more reflective in Brando's disappointment, his own disappointment, he watches the film and thinks, you know, God, that could have been better. It just it says a lot about Brando's own perfectionism. Yeah, yeah. For sure. He actually he really he really did care, and he, he you know he could he knew a good performance. He could have done better, and he was always striving for that, and um, and um, and that's not something which he would, you know, often um, uh, want other people to know about necessarily, because that was another point of vulnerability. Right. You know, he did care about that stuff. He always, and he, even in the roles which we wouldn't have really consider, I think he always he often went into them with good intentions. Sometimes needing the money, but when he committed to something, I think he, you know, he always wanted to give it his best shot, even when it would hold. And you know, on some occasions fire but i think when you're as brave an actor as him and you're trying such de- different things as he was uh, he would attempt then um you know that you'd you'd miss absolutely well <laughs> waterfront one of the great movies of all time um but and then the very next year um, to basically to your point about how he took on such a 
broad range of roles. The very following year, he does Guys and Dolls, and he's doing a musical. <laughs> I mean, with Sinatra. And what what was it like for him to to rev up for that kind of a role? Was I mean, that's that's a totally new uh, challenge compared to the previous film roles he had. I think that role for him, you know, was um, and that was his, you know, his his first really big Hollywood movie. Of course, he's already won an Oscar at this point, but that was the one with the you know, that was a big budget movie, right. and um, and and it was a it was a you know a new experience for him. But I think it was in a, in another respect, it was a respite because he'd had a lot of very heavy roles. His first five mm-hmm. films were you know pretty intense, and right. the subject matter was you know quite heavy. So the chance to Something that was light and to and to stretch his range as an actor. And again, he was thinking about you know he, he always dismissed that you know acting was something that he got into accidentally. And there was a degree of accident, but there was a lot of design there. And, you know, he, he was um, he, he was already starting to think about you know the breadth of his roles and the, yeah. and the, the, his range. I think he and, uh, and comedy was something that he hadn't done. Right. So um, so he threw, threw himself into it. He threw himself into it, but. It was a bit of a poison chalice because it was after that that his fame really exploded. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously he was popular at that point, but then he became like, you know, the, the, it just hit a much bigger audience, that, that, that size of movie, than his other stuff did. And, uh, you know, and, pay, and fame was the one thing that would really catch up with him by the end of his, you know, um, and, and torment him, I think, in his, in his later years. Absolutely. Does he talk at all about just moving chronologically a little bit? Does he talk about um, One Eye Jacks, his his directorial effort? I think the one and only, right? He did. Yeah, I mean, he did actually. I mean, there are there are clips of One Eye Jacks in the film, and, okay. it, and as it happens, I, you know, I was, I was keen to find a um, uh, you know a way to actually look into that, or this, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. but the, the, the visuals are there. But um, but I mean, I mean, it's one of my favorites actually, <laughs> and I know um, I, 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 there are a few there are some of his films that you know I discovered when when. Um, um, directing the doc, and that was one sure. of them. And I think it's a great, fantastic western. He directed yeah. it, showed a lot of a lot of skill in that. There's some famous about how the the edit was taken away from him, and um, and and that upset him greatly. Um, but even with that, and even with it not being the cut, I think he really he, um, he was most keen on. There's no denying how good a film it was. Is that why he never returned to it? But because they, you know, the, he didn't get final, you know, carte blanche at the end. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, he was uh, he he had um, yeah. There was there was just pressure for you know for 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 him to be out of the edit room. Yeah. He was wrestling with it. It'd gone over, it and um, and he'd spent um, you know the cut was still quite long um, when he was um, uh, um, whittle it down and and but people ran out of patience and the studio the studio took it away from him and that was you know just a uh, just soul destroying for him because he'd actually put in a hell of a lot of work into it but despite that you know it's 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 still a great film i think scorsese's favorite um western as well actually yeah wow yeah i mean it's it's i always found it a curious case with a guy like brando and one-eyed jacks or you know charles lawton with night of the hunter it's like how do the these super huge actors and they try to go behind the camera and it's a one-off and they decide this isn't for me but Decades later, we look at both of them as as freaking masterpieces. So I, that's just fascinating to me. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, his, his skills in 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 directing and writing are just much undersold. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 got you got much more than an actor with Brando. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and and it's touched 
in the film, certainly with the looking at the scripts of Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. but he would just rewrite, he'd rewrite stuff. He'd have it in his contract where he could have yeah. the ability to, to change his lines. And, you know, because he would improvise so much, and it was, but it was always a studied improvisation. You know, sure. know he'd, he'd, he, you know, I would not be at all surprised if he had a lot of those thoughts and ideas in his mind before he even arrived on set. Right. But, um, but, um, but he would, you know, craft things and deliver um, interpretations on characters and change the scripts in, in much more interesting ways than, um, than, um, than often much more interesting ways than the writers would originally put down. And so, you know, that was, you know, that was, that was, uh, you know, um, a feature of many of his films, including The Godfather. Mm-hmm. You know, he changed the scripts a lot when you see, when you get the original scripts and you watch that film, yeah. and you see how many lines that Marlon's, um, you know, changed himself and how much value he's added. And um, the famous thing, you know, in the Apocalypse Now, was that he, um, which I found fascinating, and it was that that the entire lighting of that um, was um, uh, Marlon's request. You mean the final, the, the, the yeah. horror, the horror scene in the in the compound? Yeah, well, well, most of that stuff, you know, that indoor material where you know where there's shafts of light and right. Marlon moves between you know, yeah. the light and the darkness, like half lit faces and stuff. Yeah, of Kurt. So, yeah, that was all. That was all coming from him, and that's that's. His instincts you know coming through there that's great um yeah i want to get to apocalypse in a second but um you mentioned the godfather um clearly i mean the role that most people of of all generations are you know will will remember him for um did he did he have um any similar reservations um as you said he did with waterfront in terms of you know he he thought he stunk up the joint and wound up winning an oscar i mean this he wound up winning for the godfather but did he or did he know this was this was going to be huge um, he, I, at that point, you know, there's no doubt that he actually was pretty, uh, you know, he was in need of the role mm-hmm. and, um, you know, he was in, he was in need of money. He had lots of dependents, um, um, from different relationships and, you know, children and, 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 and had an archipelago in the South Pacific to pay for. You know, and he needed work, and actually, in a lot of the, a lot of the phone calls, had, the phone had stopped ringing, and a lot of the work had dried up because you know a series of films in the sixties hadn't really done at all well. Right. So there was a, a de- there was a degree of urgency to actually you know to to get a role and to do something good just to pay the bills. <laughs> so, um, um, but you know, he he talked about in, in uh, an insecurity that he had that he didn't know whether he was going to be right for that part and whether he could no. play it. Yeah, um, and. Um, and he had to find that role and really weigh in, yeah. and um, and I just thought it was really interesting, that, you know, as he would often do, he'd bring to best, you know, readings and thoughts and ideas that he was he was interested in, you know, that he was he was he was reading into outside of film, and one was the nature of good and evil. In fact, this was something which occupied him for, you know, I think um, yeah. um, other roles as well, but I think it reached its apogee in The Godfather, where he just was analyzing you know, the nature of the hero and he thought you know how fascinating it would be to tell the story of a, a gangster and, um not that he was a bad man but that he was very gentle yeah. and um just trying to get us to question our our own ideas about you know what is good and bad what is evil you know how to, yeah. what right do we have to judge people um too quickly and um and that was you know his one of his ways in and um and he you know, did see it as a capitalist Tale. I mean, obviously, the film is the film's quite different to the book, mm-hmm. and um, and does you know go in in, um, in in different directions, including for including Marlon's character, and again, he was responsible for that. 
Yeah, and you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned that he in his in his own life, his personal life, was very aware and grappled with the concept of this fatalistic idea of how much you know power we actually have over our, our own life, or or are we kind of destined to this this doomed you know ending that's already been written before we even were born? Um, was and was he? I mean, I feel like this is all over the Godfather. I mean, this is this is Michael Corleone, the one son that he doesn't want to go into the family gangster life. Why? You know, no matter what what Vito does, Michael, it's almost like fate. It's in the stars that he's destined to come back around and become exactly like him, except way more evil. Um, especially in part two. Um, it was he. Do you think he saw parallels between that sort of fatalism in Coppola's vision versus um, his own life? Um, it's interesting. You know, in terms of specifics, um, I can't think of any, but, you know, it, really, it certainly wouldn't surprise him, you know, on that. I and mean, I think um, he was somebody who was, um, you know, despite the fact that he had, um, you know, a troubled upbringing of his own, he had a, you know, a deep family and a deep aspiration to be within, you know, a functioning family mm-hmm. yeah, that was, um, you know, clearly a departure from what he'd grown up with. Yeah. So um, uh, I think he'd have had a, you know, yeah, he certainly felt a deep sense of obligation and tie and, and the gravity of the family and the, and the fate that that might then um, um, uh, include, you know, that, yeah, you're, you're, you're almost um, at the mercy of, 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 the, of the fates when... Um, when you're um, when you're, you're dealing with things like issues, like, uh, uh, you're dealing with obligations of duty you know, to your family. Yeah. So when he says lines like um, "a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man," that there's it rings very personal to him, huh? Well, that's it. And you know, and to be honest, I mean, again, it's, uh, um, uh, just timid to, to find out whether Marlon had come up with that line himself, but it'd be interesting to you know to look into that, you know, because that's the kind of stuff you would do. Yeah. Again, did, if you look at the script of The Godfather, there were definite changes that you know came with it. Did he um, did he explain um, his Sachin Little Feather uh, Oscar acceptance speech where he didn't show up and sent you know the Native American to accept it, who wasn't really a Native American, right? What what was that whole controversy? Did did he talk about that in the movie? Um, he does. He talks about um, uh, yes, that that definitely features because I mean, the the cause of the Native American Indian was so um, it was so uh, dominant in Marlon's life and mm-hmm. um, and a, a cause which he w- was um, faithful to. For, why do you, Why do you think that was? Um, de- decades. I think. Um, I think he really was wrestling with um, questions of of his own his own conscience mm-hmm. from a, a, an early age right. i think he really he he asked you know if he uh, how am i my brother's keeper right and um, and he felt that he should um you know that it was his his job as um as you know um uh, in the course of his life to to find truth and also to to do the right thing and he, he very early on from a young age he was always on the side of the light and um, and I find it fascinating his journey in his life, where he actually ends up becoming, um, uh, you know, from being so idealistic, you know, not just in um, uh, in, in, in his acting, he really wants to find truth, but he also wants to find truth to humanity and find mm-hmm. a better way and mode for us all to live together in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by over the years, it slipped, you know, that idealism and ends up becoming something a bit more nihilistic. Um, mm-hmm. 
um, coincidentally around the time of Apocalypse Now, where yeah, you know, he felt that actually we were we were we were doomed in a sense because our own essential nature was animalistic and we were doomed to hurt each other, um, and um, and um, and it infected his acting as well. He felt that you know that you know truth was a um, a, a far flung pursuit and that you know life is a lie. Um, as well, and acting is a lie. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, th- there was, there was, um, um, yeah, there was a lot of um, uh, idealism early doors. I mean, in his life, I think he really wanted to make sure that he um, he helped other people, and he, he did actually stick um, faithfully to the cause of the underdog. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who was oppressed, anyone who was um, uh, in any way. Um, uh, put upon and downtrodden, he would. He felt an immediate sympathy for because that's how he felt when he was a kid. Yeah, you know when um, he, he felt like he was the outsider. His his family were the sort of persona non grata in town because of because his mum was um, um, you know, somewhat notorious for her, you know being the town drunk, and um, and he felt as if really fit in and um, and had a had an empathy for others who didn't as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's yeah, he needs to the American Indian cause and um, and felt that the American American society had to address that hypocrisy. Yeah, um, the the um, American you know the the American ideal of of um, of, of being uh, you know, virtuous and 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 um, uh, freedom, uh, a, melt, and, a melting and, pot, uh, and all that. The ideals are there, but we haven't always lived up to it. Is what he's saying. Pretty much, exactly. And now that was that was you know, and, and he wanted to he wanted to just make sure that we were aware of that, and, um, and uh, or the Americans rather uh, addressed it, and um, and um, um, and uh, and would give the you know rightful uh, apology and compensation to American Native American Indians, many of whom were his friends. Absolutely. And I mean, I think those hypocrisies and corruptions from all levels are are just woven so beautifully into the Godfather movies. I mean, I think that's why they're arguably the greatest ever done. But um, did he did he um, did he did he explain why he he didn't come back for part two? Because they had to, you know, redo the whole ending there so that he wasn't on screen, you know, when they have the flashback. Um, no, it's not. Um, it, it, it's, yeah, it's not in the documentary, and, and, I, and I, don't, I know that. Um, um, I, but I think it was. I think it might have been for money matters. Oh, okay. You know, he didn't get paid uh, um, uh, a lot at all. Godfather, and actually sold his stake in it mm. um, for um, you know um, nothing. He got an upfront payment to, 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 to actually cash in any equity in the film. Mm. So he he didn't he didn't really make um, much from uh, Godfather one at all. So when he wanted uh, he was seeking some um, compensation for that in Godfather two. I don't think they were ready to um, stamp up that. Yeah, it's it's such a shame too because there's in so many ways part two, you know, expands upon and is and is just almost an equally if not better uh, film too. Um, and it's so beautiful to see, you know, 
Pacino intercut with with De Niro playing the younger Brando. But man, if 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 they could have also had Brando in there, it seems like such it seems such a shame if they couldn't have uh, almost done the three way parallel story. That would have been insane. Um, but be that as it may, beggars can't be choosers. It's they're amazing flicks. Um, what was his what was his thoughts on on Coppola? Um, but you know, between The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Um, how, what were his thoughts as a, as, a, as a filmmaker? I mean, to me, the guy was a visionary genius. Um, I think there were a few directors that he, um, he very much respected, certainly Kazan, um, I, um, Gio Pontecorvo, he yeah. had a lot of respect for even um, yeah. uh, when they did a film called um, Burn. And I, uh, that's one of his... That's, that was his favourite film, in fact, Burn. And also... Uh, Bertolucci, I think he had a lot of respect for, yeah. and then Coppola. I think those 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 four directors, among all of them, were the ones that Brando felt most affinity towards. And um, but he 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 was not impressed with um, uh, Coppola's behaviour, um, certainly around the time of Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. because um, there was that. time-wasting, that right. he, he arrived on set and he was overweight and um, and uh, and they really didn't appreciate being upset by that because he felt that he had um, he'd saved Coppola yeah. in the course of making that film what, uh, what? because because the script had wasn't um, fully formed right. and um, and it was on the basis of um, it was it was rewritten by by Brando and I actually I was listening to the tapes that Brando recorded which included all the preparations for um, the character of Kurtz. And again, very different from the original script. Yeah. And Brando was bringing, bringing in a lot of the stuff that he was interested in. And, um, and, and should, yeah, definitely be given a lot of credit for, for reforming that, that last act. Yeah, absolutely. And he felt that he felt there was a minor betrayal, or not, if not major betrayal, by, um, by Coppola in not recognizing that. So was all that... Was all that stuff true then? That I mean, I've always heard those stories, and and there was the great documentary about it. You know, um, Hearts of Darkness, filmmakers' apocalypse. I think it was called. Um, that was shot by Coppola's wife. But was all that was all that? Um, you know, was it true about you know how he showed up? Um, you know, had he hadn't even read the Conrad book? I think I heard somewhere that he was overweight. I mean, uh, was was any of that true? But but also, I mean, he he also thought that um, Coppola. You know, should have overlooked that because he did, and in the end, you know, save save his movie, save his Act Three. Well, that's just, I mean, you know, there was all sorts of things going on around that. There were money issues again. You know, Brando wanted to get his payment, agreed payment up front. Coppola wasn't in the position to pay it. You know, there had been a lot of um, uh, Brando was had been um, uh, leaning on Coppola for that payment. So that was a separate issue that was affecting things. Um, but. Um, uh, you know, even when you watch Hearts of Darkness, there's a bit of an, there's an anomaly in there when, um, uh, cause Coppola admits that it was a, com- it was a complete, um, um, nut house. Oh, yeah. And the, 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 the entire production had, uh, you know, hit the, hit the, hit the rocks and he didn't have a script and, yeah. and he says, well, what do you do in that situation? Do you go away and spend months writing a script or do you do improvisations with, with Marlon Brando? <laughs> he even says that in the film. So, so actually, so the fact that in, you know, that it went over by a couple of weeks yeah. and Brando's rewriting it for him, you know, I think is, is, um, 
uh, it just seems a bit hypocritical that you can't, you know, have your cake and eat it and say that, you know, I, I want to do improvisations. They take a bit longer. And you know, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, you know, difficult. There's no question. I think he would, right. he would, um, you know, if he if he didn't like a director or if he lost faith in the production, you know, right. he could play up. He could be, tough. but it was always. I mean, it was often for a point of, um, you know, not always from a point of petulance. It was because he actually cared and felt in there, yeah. and he felt that you know things were going to go. Um, that weren't going according to um, you know the the high hopes that he really uh, would have originally have had. In this instance, I just think that it, you know I, I just on balance, and I love Coppola. I love his. I mean, God, you know, he course. is um, my my um, hero in mm. in terms of the films that he's done. But in on just that this this topic of right. Brando and Coppola and their relationship and Apocalypse Now, mm. I think there's there's more to be said on that. And I think Brando deserved his his um, comeback. That, which, he, which he gets in the film, and you know he he um you know he um he talks about it. That's very very fascinating. I mean, yeah, like you, I, I've always admired Coppola's work, um, big time, I'm right up there with any other filmmaker. But this, you always hear the stories about you know Brando being unprepared on Apocalypse Now, but it's nice to hear sort of the the other side in his own words of, hey hey buddy, I was re- I was rewriting everything. Um, was the horror the horror was that was that his improv line or was that actually in the original script? Do you know? Um, so that particular, like, I, you know, I don't know. All I can tell you is that, you know, that there were tapes and tapes and tapes where Brando is just ad-libbing into a, yeah. into a dictaphone and is just exploring, you know, the logic of deep evil. <laughs> kind, and, of like, um, kind of like and, Kurtz in the movie. <laughs> exactly, just yeah. that, yeah. Because he was, because actually cause the original character of Kurtz, when you see it, you know, was almost like a reprobate. Yeah. And he was very decadent. He right. was... You know, he had concubines and was, you know, and then sort of a, 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 a very different person. He wasn't this, he wasn't this um, uh, embodiment of, of evil or right. heart of darkness, right. which is, which was, which was Brando's, um, you know, innovation. I mean, obviously he would have discussed it with, with, with Coppola, but, you know, he yeah. then goes away and, and, and does these lines. Yeah, I mean, I into it and it's all the stuff that he was fascinated by. He already, he was saying, how could you make, how could you actually in, make this guy intelligent? How could you make Kit Kurtz a you know a smart person who, in some respects, could justify this this these terrible acts? And that was the challenge, and that's the stuff he was exploring. But that's all by himself, and he's he's doing these he's doing these improvs, and then that's really what was kind of you know, and you see even you can see on on um you know the the, the even on the making of her Hearts and Darkness, you know that that's what Brando's doing. You just keep doing this stuff until he dried up. You know, he just he just try he just riff until you know, and that's yeah. what was cut. Wow. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I think that you know, ultimately that's why why the film works almost in its transcendent <laughs> we're all screwed kind of way. But um, it's 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 following his mental journey as Kurtz Brando in the in the role as Kurtz going further further down the metaphorical river. Um, I, so I kind of I kind of hear you. I think I think. Brando's wrestling with his own demons there in a weird way sort of saved what was a hellacious shoot. And, you know, they're both he and Coppola had strong personalities, but um, in a way, many of the things you you say that, that uh, Brando was wrestling with on, in his own internal struggle of good and evil and fate and free will and life and humanity um, and hypocrisies, I, th- I think it kind of all comes out there in, in those Kurtz rants. I really do. Yeah, and I think he wanted to want to alert the audience to, you know, make them, you know, investigate the nature of evil. He, yeah. was, he was kind of sort of shining light on that, you know, a topic that, you know, we wouldn't really want to otherwise address. And so rather 
hero or the good guy, he would take on those roles quite purposefully because he wanted to make us confront those questions. You know, there was something a bit didactic and, you know, and, and um, uh, teacher-like, yeah, lecturing about Brandon where he would want to make sure that we understood these, these things. There was a purpose in that rather than just indulging his own right. negativity. You know, he was trying to communicate Right. Um, you know, and things uh, to the audience, for the audience to digest. Yeah, it's, it's a true exploration, absolutely. Um, mm. What did he have to, you know, compare that, you know, his, we've talked a lot about him and, and Coppola. Um, how did he always view that working relationship compared to, say, he and Bertolucci on Tango? Um, I think it was a different dynamic, as you'd expect. I mean, I think Brando appreciated the artist and the competent artist. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who could, you know, justify their vision and explain things and talk them through. He liked guidance, in fact, and he appreciated right. that. You know, it's a very lonely job being a leading man yeah. and going out there. And, you know, you need, you know, it's, he really appreciated having someone to bounce off, but that was all too rare. And, um, and with Bertolucci, um, I think that you know it was a slightly vulnerable time in his life. Mm -hmm. There was there was certain um, um, uh, you know I, I, I just I, I I got the feeling he was a little bit more fragile in the background around that around the shooting of Last Tango too, and maybe a bit more susceptible to someone like Bertolucci who was you know incredibly um, uh, persuasive and and. Um, um, uh, you know, attentive to the actor and would and would you know just get down to their level and really try to communicate. And uh, and Bertolucci wanted to draw this this personal history out of Marlon. Wanted Marlon to be you know as much of himself on screen, yeah. which which Marlon always never wanted to do and always say he'd resist it. But I think he you know he he also saw the appeal because he was seeking truth on. He wanted to communicate truth. Right. And what better way to actually you know reveal social truths and personal truths to the audience than actually to reveal your own soul. And um, and, I, and I'm and I'm pretty convinced that you know Bertolucci managed to you know draw that out of him. And I don't know whether it was something with you that Brando was you know uh, necessarily um, proud of when he'd seen the final cut again. He didn't think it was um, um, you know something that maybe he had given too much. And I think he put up a few smoke screens saying that that wasn't really him and, mm -hmm. and what have you. But uh, he. Right. Um, he was, uh, I think, I think he, he, you know, he was in in that dialogue with Bertolucci. You know, he went to places where he never thought, um, uh, or he never planned to go, and wanted to go. Now, pivoting from Bertolucci to Pontecorvo, um, I mean, you you mentioned that um, Burn, nineteen sixty nine film, um, was Brando's personal favorite, um, and I'm sure it's one that a lot of our listeners probably haven't seen, com at least compared to the, a lot of the other you know more famous movies we've mentioned. Um, but Pontecorvo, man, I mean, his uh, he made Battle of Algiers a few years before that, I think sixty six maybe, and man, that movie is just an uh, all time masterpiece. And then here, um, here in Burn, he works with Brando. So um, why why in the in your documentary does Brando, um, you know what does he say about Byrne and why does he hold that up as his own personal favorite accomplishment? Uh, I've just got to be honest. So actually Byrne's not, and you see this clips of it again, but I don't go into the story of Byrne in the documentary. Okay. But, um, but I know, um, uh, in terms of why Brando would have chosen that role, okay. he, um, um, you know, it just offered so much more besides, you know, it's, it's a, it's a commentary on colonialism and, and greed and, um, and um, uh, 
this um, quite um, sordid diplomacy and realpolitik that you know that would mean maneuvering to 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 serve themselves and reward you know get what they want at the expense of others just the sort of thing that Marlon was interested in again yeah he would he would you know that that toying with these themes of of the um, good and evil within us all and what most motivates us towards evil was why he would have um, you know gone with that pick I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure yeah it's interesting I mean if People are so shocked. He sends, you know, you know, the Native American statement thing to, at the Oscars. But re- really, if you look a couple years earlier at Byrne, it's not hard to see why he would sympathize with that sort of a cause. I mean, Byrne, Byrne is about, you know, uh, British colonialism in the sugar trade going down to the Caribbean, um, you know, so and, and kind of uh, taking over down there. So, I mean, it's it's a very similar themes here of colonizing and what happens to the indigenous people, sort of a sort of a thing he's he's wrestling with and it sounds like sounds like he had an affinity for be my brother's keeper i mean uh, at least according to you that this this is a fascinating topic well he was i think he was and then he got upset because you know burn didn't really hit you know hit anyone's radar it right. wasn't it wasn't well marketed it didn't go anywhere and that was that was the sort of thing which left him really disillusioned you know he quoted the hollywood saying that you know if you've got a message go to western union <laughs> and he felt that right. actually any of you know, message films didn't right. really um, um, attract the bucks right. and the marketing bucks. That I always I think was a source of disappointment to him. Where, yeah, it had to be frustrating because then and then he turned around and you know do something like Superman and and it reaches everybody, but you know not as much of a, a message in there. So that had to be a, been a frustrating thing he wrestled with back and forth throughout. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, so he calls, you know, he says Superman, even, you know, I'd, I'd love Superman as a kid, but, you know, Brandon said it was a rather silly movie. Right. And he just got involved in it because it was, um, uh, paid him uh, millions for a few days' work. Sure. And that was when, you know, that was, those, those describe some of the low points for him, you know, where he just wanted to, you know, take his, you know, take his money and run. Right. And, uh, clock in and, uh, you know, those were just paydays for him. And, and he didn't really work for much of the, um, the 80s after Superman. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of, um, you know, nice paid leave for him for the um, best part of a decade. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, was that, I mean, is that why, as, as it kind of went into the 80s, did he sort of see the industry shifting sort of more down that route? I mean, we saw kind of an explosion of sequels and, you know, all kinds of, you know, sort of blockbuster culture really kind of took over in that decade. Um, was there was there less of a place for a, a curious social mind like Brando as we kind of forged ahead into into the 80s and 90s? Um, I wonder. I'm trying to think of his role. I mean, he actually got an Oscar um, I mean, you might have a nomination this, but for um, oh, right. in 1989. Dry White, White for, Season, um, yeah. Dry White Season, which was a very politically, a very political film in mm-hmm. as much as it dealt with apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, there he's playing a South African. He's been, you know, showing his um, uh, range. And, um, and, and and I know from from speaking to the director of that film that he you know, before he went out on set he would he would look at he would he would look at photos of the the Soweto massacre where the school children were shot upon by um, the um, the um, South African police but to, in order to to really you know almost kind of um, um, hurt himself and, and as sensitive as he was and bring out that emotion so that he can give the best performance possible. Absolutely. Well, see, that, and that's the thing. There were still movies like that being made, and there are today. They're, they're the great ones. You kind of have to, you know, wade through 
the culture that that the Superman spawned, which we are currently living in now. Tons of superhero movies, but there there's still movies like those very, um, you know, deep social movies like A Dry White Season that are still being done. So, oh, and he was with Donald Sutherland in that too, right? Wow, man. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just looking back at the body of work and all the directors he he worked with: Ponte Corvo, Bertolucci, Coppola, Kazan. Um, who is guys and dolls? Was that Mankiewicz? I think. Yeah, Joseph Mankiewicz of All mm-hmm. About Eve. Man, I mean, the guy. It's it's probably no secret that um, great filmmaking artists are attracted to great acting artists. I mean, it's that can't be a coincidence there. Um, uh, let's move into the, you know, we could sit here and talk about this forever, and you're like, well, we have. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, let's move into the final chapter of his life, you know, sort of, the, you know, act three that you talked about of, of the three stages of Brando here in the movie, um, how it kind of uh, ended up with this tragedy that, that unfolded in his home where, you know, his son literally, you know, commits murder, the murder of his of what, brother-in-law. Um, yeah, he's. I think he, he was convicted for manslaughter in the end. Manslaughter. And it was his. Um, and it was. Uh, yeah, it was his. His. Uh, his sister's um, boyfriend. Actually, the father of his. His, um, uh, his sister's uh, um, child. She was pregnant at the time. Wow. Did they? Um, how? Mm. How? How much of your movie? Um, do you go into that? Um, let's say, uh, just for comparison's sake, you know, last week I reviewed one of the movies I reviewed was Amy, the Amy Winehouse doc, and you kind of. Your whole movie, you're you're kind of wincing because you know it's going to be hard to watch in the end. How do you, how did you deal with you know such a sensitive topic, wanting to be respectful to Brando, but at the same time you need to you know you absolutely have to include this in the movie. How did you kind of do that delicate dance for for Act Three there? Um, I mean, it, it it is and was tricky to to um, somehow nutshell however something like that could ever have happened you know bearing in mind that you know Christian and 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 I had lots of materials and I had access to you know tapes that um that recorded Christian you know um um I, I got to um um know him in a in a in a in a certain way through this body of of audio that I could you know just try and um understand what kind of a character he was and everything suggested you know a, a, a a nice boy and then a nice young man and how could um things have then gone so wrong yeah. so um uh you know it wasn't it wasn't uh, seeking to um uh you know necessarily explain anything other than you know in 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 certain situations you know good people right. can do terrible things yeah and um and that was um uh, and and there's Sometimes a possible explanation behind that, you know, how how do we um, uh, how are our behaviours um, um, dictated, and how are um, how could um, our um, particular character type um, ever respond in such a way as, um, as 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 to have done something so you know um, out of character and so violent? And the thing was, is it, it, you know, there was a it's an exploration of um, of, of dysfunctional behaviour that can go right back to um, um, the uh, you know, the roots of our childhood, and um, and and Marlon recognises that it was the it was the same dysfunction that he might have faced or he did face as a boy that um, is that uh, then um, very possibly was inherited by his own son, which is. 
as you say that, I get chills because that's exactly what The Godfather is. You know, you, you try to, you work your whole life in pursuit of, you know, this higher, you know, better life for your son. And in the end, you're saying he's, the son is plagued by the same problems he had. You know, the, the father becomes the son, um, as he said in Superman. Um, but it's the theme in Godfather too. It's, a, it's amazing how this life parallels. It really is. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean there are those. I mean, it's, it, it, I know. I, I mean, I, I do know what you're saying. It, it almost feels a bit too flippant, to, you know, to compare it to, you know, one of his lead roles. But I mean, right. it, there was there was there was quite a few instances where, you know, um, um, uh, coincidentally, um, life would be imitating um, art. Yeah. And um, you know, Marlon would bring so much of the things he was interested in into, as I um, mentioned, from his own life into his roles that it was deeply ironic that something like this could have happened because it's the right. sort of thing that Marlon's talking about and predicting for many years. And I, like, you know, where does, um, where, where does um, violence and rage come from? Yeah. It was certainly an emotion that he was trying to um, uh, diagnose and um, attend to in himself. Absolutely. Did he, um, was there... Was there a reason he named him Christian? Was it was this a spiritual thing, or is there a reasoning behind that? Um, do you know he had um, he had a very good friend called Christian Marcond who okay. was um, yeah who who I, I, I who, um, I'm pretty convinced uh, was the reason that he named him that uh, Christian after him. Um, uh, he obviously played Fletcher Christian in uh, Meet You on the Bounty, but I don't know right. that. Right, the old but, um, was it was that the old. Was it a Gable character originally? Uh, the first, yeah, the first yeah. making, the first movie was. Yeah, right. that was Clark Gable playing um, the same role. Yep. Um, <laughs> whose style you say he did not approve of? Um, all right, cool. Well, um, I, yeah, I remember when that whole, I remember when the whole case came out with 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 you know his son and, but I haven't really you know followed it since. Is he still serving time right now? Uh, no, so he's passed away now. Yeah, he, he, oh, the he son came out of. Um, yeah, he served his time in prison, and um, um, and then um, not long after, a few several years after, he uh, he ended up um, dying from pneumonia, I believe. Oh wow! But he'd always been afflicted by that with um, with uh, yeah. lung problems from an early age, and actually did, and as did Marlon. Um, it's actually among the illnesses which Marlon had towards the end of his life. Pulmonary fibrosis was one of the things which um, yeah. um, which killed him. How do you handle sort of the the end of his life and the end of his story? Um, you know, what's sort of the the final clip of of Brando's own? You know, Brando on Brando. You know, we kind of talked about <laughs> the rosebud analogy. You know what? If if he had a final word on his lips in in you know in let's say if it was a perfect obviously you're making a documentary and you're not there when he has his final word but what what do you think that final word would be to sum up this life? Well, it's interesting. One of the things he says, um, which is which is in the documentary, is he says you know when he dies he um, he wanted to have a microphone placed in his coffin <laughs> so that he could say um, and tell everyone to do it differently. Wow. Why do you think that is? Uh, and that was it. I mean, I think he was just incredibly, you know, that's the one thing, that's the exciting thing, is that for somebody who I, who I know was very insecure, mm-hmm. um, who had the same, you know, worries and concerns that we all have and the same um, you know, issues of confidence and, yeah. and definite superiority, that he was actually brave in his profession. 
and he then he went outside of his comfort zone. He used to talk about you know just go off the high board, you know, and take risks. And uh, and a lot of people take the safe route, and that's one thing that can't definitely not be you know, for 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 Brando. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a is that is that something great that I mean you think people go to see see this documentary? Let's say our listeners who are you know interested in one or two of his roles but don't know much about his personal life. You know, what are they going to walk away from the theater thinking of this of this life and and how they're going to apply it to how they live? Well, I think I hope they'll go in really knowing him, you know, and actually knowing. Um, better than they ever thought because, you know, um, the, the documentary is entirely in, in Marlon's own voice. There's not another voice in the film, which is Brando talking for the full type or full extent. And he's the one um, who is um, explaining himself and describing himself and all the things he's fascinated and interested in. You know, I think they'll discover a complete individual, you know, and someone who's very human and not in an ivory tower of fame, which he always was trying to dismantle through the course of his life. He can stand... Right. Um, you know, being um, being separate from the world. He was someone who was ordinarily very much out there. You know, he wanted to um, embrace life and he was you know, an observe and be the voyeur and that was deprived from him. But even despite that, you know, there's a real sort of like understanding and humanity and, um, um, and um, you know, somebody who I um, uh, really um, enjoyed um, spending time with. I was in the company of, of him in making the film for... Um, you know, the edit was nine months, and I had not that entire time um, uh, just trying to, you know, um, piece this this grand story of his life together. Uh, it's all in his own voice, so um, it's um, it's autobiographical in that sense. Absolutely, yeah. You probably feel like he's an old friend at this point. <laughs> You've spent a lot of time with him. Um, congrats, hey, congrats on you know on getting the movie out there and the success. I know you were nominated um, Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, right? Uh, yeah, it was. It will be. That was the. That was the world premiere, which was um, a great fun. It was. A, yeah, privilege to be there. What was it like? We'd sitting there, you know, spending so much time on this, obviously putting it together, and and so much energy and effort, and finally be able to look up and and see it on the screen at Sundance. What was that like? Um, it was. Yeah, fantastic. It's always um, interesting, you know, to screen it in front of an a big audience, and that was the first time. Mm -hmm. um, so you never quite know how that's going to go, and it was. Um, um, and. Um, uh, but it was, but it was, you know, really positive. I think, um, uh, you know, people found that they, could, you know, could connect with the movie, uh, and 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 it was emotional in 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 the right place. And when I say the right place, you, know, you yourself have seen that emotion. So that I, I could feel that from the audience too. But um, but it was interesting. There was some, you know, some people would turn up which you wouldn't get at a normal screening. There was, um, you know, James Franco came to one, and nice. Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. I think they were all curious about. Um, um, all things Brando, so um, so that was um, uh, 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 a nice surprise at, at Sundance. So you find that today's actors and filmmakers, you know, the pe sort of the people you mentioned showing up in that room to watch it, um, there's still a fascination with Brando. Sort of, is it is it because he was kind of the best of the best at his craft, and and people just want to figure out what made him tick? Or I mean, there's still that fascination in today's Hollywood with Brando. I think all those things. Yeah, he was so and so ambivalent you know he would operate at the extremes and was um somebody you couldn't put your finger on him he's always a moving target but i think in his entirety as as uh, as again i hope the documentary shows he was he was incredibly human and someone he was um um you could relate to 
And uh, so it's that humanity which I think is attracting, um, which attracts people as well. I mean, that's a quality you can't ever communicate. But I think even it's interesting. Even my mum, who's from uh, Montenegro, um, she remembers watching Brando as, uh, as a young man. I'd ask her, well, "So what was it about him you remember?" And she goes, "You know, she could tell his spirit and his and his and his humanity, this guy." And that was, you know, being communicated with subtitles. So it's all I think, and and you know, going back to plays a streetcar and his early roles. I mean, you know, the guy was a, you know, obviously, um, you know, handsome, um, uh, you know, in a way that guys can appreciate right. well enough, um, you know, uh, 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 we understand as well as women, because, I mean, just, you know, he was just, I think you could step out of those films today and be just as popular. I mean, he was, right. he was setting an entire, um, you know, look and, and, and fashion, which would pervade the entire 20th century, defined a lot of 20th century cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was he was there from the get go. He was the originator and the, the revolutionary, and so um, for for all these reasons, I think there, there will always be a fascination in him. Absolutely. Um, well, hey, listen, um, Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. I think we just passed the hour mark, but it felt like ten minutes to me, man. I mean, we it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. So um, thanks so much for coming on. You you don't know how much I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. Explain your DNA on on 10 cases, man. You're inside the police interrogation room with the alleged Potomac River rapist. I'm not guilty on any of this stuff. So calm, so reasonable. Could this be the man who terrorized women for nine years before murdering a brilliant scientist two decades ago? Experience one of the most fascinating true crime podcasts available. Join crime reporter Paul Wagner for Unknown Subject, season three of WTOP's American Nightmare series. Search American Nightmare Podcast on all podcast platforms. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.